just a reminder, here at That's So Chronic, we are dedicated to sharing personal stories. We are not advocating any type of treatment, therapy, procedure or intervention. Everyone is unique, so please seek professional medical advice before making any decisions for yourself or for others. Welcome to That's So Chronic, the podcast where I, Jess Bryan, interview some incredible people from around the world that are thriving and sometimes only just surviving with chronic illnesses, life-changing injuries and potentially disastrous diagnoses. Today I am chatting to psychiatrist, comedian and author Dr. Jo Prendergast about her diagnosis of breast cancer and her latest book, When Life Sucks. In this episode, Jo talks us through her breast cancer diagnosis and what happened next. We chat about the amount of decisions you have to make after a diagnosis. We have a revelation about life insurance and the stark differences between public and private healthcare here in New Zealand. We also discuss how she incorporates her cancer journey into her stand-up comedy and all about her latest book titled When Life Sucks, a first aid manual for supporting your teens mentally. Health. As always, all of the links to everything we chat about in today's episode will be in the show notes, so head there if you would like more information. Welcome to That's So Chronic. It has certainly been a long time coming trying to organize this interview. I don't normally disclose the behind the scenes, I guess, of how the podcast gets made. But just before logging into this call, I went back onto the Google form and you first connected with me and with That's So Chronic on the 13th of August, 2021. Yes, I know. So we've just had our two-year anniversary of trying to do the podcast. So I think that's beautiful. (laughs) We have, and of course now it's the 24th or the 25th of August 2023, so I guess this is also just a note to everybody listening who's still waiting for a reply. (laughs) (laughs) Might take Jess two years to finally connect with you, but when she does it's worth it. (laughs) Exactly. Now you are a psychiatrist, Mm -hmm. you are also a comedian, an author, and in June 2021, you were diagnosed with breast cancer, which I can assume has been and continues to be quite a journey. So thank you so much, like I said before, for joining me on That So Chronic today. Yes, and just, just a note to any listeners, it was just as much me as Jess with the delays. We we kept kind of going, <laughs> let's go for September, and then in September, oh no, I've got kind of this going on, and then, oh no, I'm in hospital, and then, oh no, I'm out of the country, and yeah. oh no, I'm moving house. So, um, yes, so yeah. it was, or, oh no, it's the middle of COVID, and we're both socially isolating, and let's wait till we can do this in person, and now two years later, we're doing it remotely. <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly and that's the beauty of doing a podcast like this when both me and the guests completely understand <laughs> these limitations we're going to talk about your book as well titled when life sucks a little bit later in the episode but I guess to start with should we go back to early 2021 when 
this breast cancer diagnosis entered your life. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I was just thinking about it last night, knowing that we were going to catch up today and thought that really my health was incredibly good until about the middle of 2020. And I don't know if it was a coincidence that my health went downhill in 2020 when I obviously had breast cancer growing, uh, but I had quite a severe post-viral fatigue and uh, developed POTS in terms of um, my heart rate really going up every time I sat up or stood up, had vestibular dysfunction that I kept falling to the left, uh, really severe fatigue to the point that I could only do about 10 minutes of something and I'd have to lie down. So I had about nine months of that after a virus yeah. and then it suddenly switched off in the beginning of 2021 and I went, yay, I'm healthy again, I'm going to get on with life. And then I suddenly developed a strange discomfort under my, sort of the bottom of my right rib cage. So I went to my GP and he did my uh, blood tests and my kidney function was really off and then we worked out that was probably because I was having a high protein diet at that time but then mm -hmm. he did organized all these CTs and things of my abdomen to try and work out what was causing the pain sort of at the the top of my abdomen and didn't find anything but it was actually that pain that allowed me to discover my breast cancer because uh, I was in, in oh. I was in, in bed one night and I was rubbing the ribs because they were uncomfortable and my hand just sort of slid up to the side of my boob and I went, that doesn't feel right. Uh, and then I kind of felt around a bit more and there was this really massive marble in there. And I went, that's not a good sign, I don't think. And the next morning I checked under my armpit and there was a massive marble in my armpit as well. Ah. And I kind of went, sort of in the night I went, probably a cyst, don't panic. And then when I found yeah. a marble in my armpit, I went, probably cancer, do panic. Um, yeah. So immediately, immediately went to my GP and said, hey, could you take a look at my boobs? And uh, he went, hmm, yeah, possibly a cyst, but the, uh, <laughs> the, mar the marble in your armpit makes that less likely. Let's get an urgent mammogram. And fortunately in uh, Otatahi Christchurch, there was an urgent sort of private public combo pathway that I could go privately but be funded publicly to basically have a mammogram within a couple of days um oh, wow. so yeah so managed to I think I went to the GP on a Wednesday and was having a mammogram and an ultrasound um on the Friday uh, right. so it all and I, I think being a doctor possibly helped because I was able to say say can we please organise investigations immediately? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. right now, like this week. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I was I was I was listening to Sarah Gandhi's po podcast last night, and the oh yes, let's wait a few months for a mammogram. And I just went, oh my goodness, that is just so awful that somebody with a breast lump has to wait a few months to get a mammogram. You know, it's completely outside of treatment guidelines and things. You're supposed to get investigated ASAP, and within a couple of months, you're supposed to to be having surgery yeah. um, not still still waiting for your investigation so and yeah I've heard a few young friends and I think because of their age
gauge their slow track um, in some cases because it's like uh, low probability that this lump is going to be anything because you're only 35 um, whereas in actual fact they could have a really aggressive breast cancer like Sarah had and kind of need to be underway really quickly so yeah exactly yeah I think both we're lucky in Christchurch because there is this sort of hybrid of public and private with a private clinic that's publicly funded and things can happen quite quickly so and I actually didn't tell anybody except a couple of medical friends that I'd found a lump because I didn't want to panic my family with oh I've got a lump until I knew that the um, Canterbury Breast Care was also concerned and was saying yes we need we need to go to the biopsy stage which they did and I think as other people have talked about you kind of know from the facial expressions and the subtle body language because nobody's allowed to tell you anything until there's a diagnosis but they kept sort of popping into the waiting room going just remind me what age your mum was when she had breast cancer Uh. okay right and then (laughs) popping back out and go just remind me whether you (laughs) you know I was going why are you needing all this information what are you kind of putting together um and and also I think you can just tell by you know when people are doing your mammogram and they sort of got a frowning expression and they're looking closely at the screen and yeah no matter how much people try and disguise the I'm going to be neutral um but just just as an aside on that topic in terms of my mammogram sort of post-cancer two years was probably the biggest panic almost I've had in this whole process where I went to have my mammogram and the room was set up incorrectly and so there was a screen like um, I was taken and they said oh are you okay just to get changed in here if you don't you know are you comfortable with that I said yeah fine so I just sat on a chair and I looked after I'd had the mammogram and I was getting dressed again I looked over and there was a screen facing me with a really obvious cancer on the screen and I I knew this because I'm doing a one-woman show about my breast cancer and I've got a copy of my mammogram from when I was diagnosed with breast cancer I looked over and went that has got a massive tumour in the middle of the breast. And I said to the person doing the mammogram, oh, and also they wanted to do the mammogram again. <laughs> so I oh went, my God. That's, not a, that's not a good sign. I can see a cancer on the screen and they're wanting to do it again. And then she said really earnestly, when are you seeing your surgeon? <gasps> and I went, I went, what so I'm not just gonna get a sort of text it's all good kind of update so I said is this something you're worried about and she said I can't say so I went I went into my car and just burst into tears and was kind of thinking I'm gonna have more surgery I'm gonna have to have more chemotherapy you know I just went into a complete tailspin and this was after being in a really good space through most of my breast cancer treatment and previous scans hadn't been an issue but seeing a mammogram with a cancer on it facing me after I just had a repeat of my mammogram and the (laughs) the person doing them and so I actually called up the breast care management and said listen just wanted to check in 
uh, patient's supposed to be able to see a screen with mammograms on it and is the screen facing the patient an old scan or today's scan and they said well you know we'll investigate it and um, check, check the layup and then they called up and apologized and gave me my results immediately which fortunately were fine so it was clearly oh my, my so clearly it was my 2021 scan that they were using as a comparison but it was facing me and it was put me into a complete tailspin and it was you know a lot of people talk about scan anxiety after they've had breast cancer and going back and having repeat scans being very traumatic yeah. and I was going yeah I don't know what you're talking about it's fine you just think of the probabilities <laughs> and you cross every bridge as you come to it and then the fact that I saw the scan you know was reading the various things that she was saying going clearly I've got breast cancer again because she wants me to see yeah. my surgeon immediately and just complete tailspin so it gave me a lot of empathy to what a lot of women probably experience every time they go for a follow-up yeah. scan that's a little aside skipping forward two years but I thought I'd just mention that while we were on the the mammogram uh, topic and so after you go see your GP on the Wednesday you have the mammogram and the scans on the Friday what is then the next step and so then they said, yes, we need to do a biopsy. Okay. And from memory, that happened on the Monday or Tuesday. So it was it was very close. So I actually found the biopsy fine. I had had a previous biopsy with a mammogram a couple of years earlier, which was not much fun because your boobs stayed in the mammogram squish while oh. they did the biopsy. And it was just positionally really uncomfortable having to stay in that position for much longer. Whereas with the ultrasound biopsy, it was just lying flat on my back, kind okay. of local anaesthetic and um, nice kind person sort of talking me through it. And I think at that point I was just in a slightly spaced out, semi-dissociated kind of state anyway. So I found it fine. And uh, I was told that my GP should have the results by the end of the week. So okay. it was quite a long week. And so yeah. by this point, I'd sort of brought my sort of husband and a few other friends into the loop. But I waited to tell um, like my mother and my sister and my kids until I had the results because I didn't want them kind of in, in limbo for a week, potentially distressed about a result that may be fine yeah. um, and so I'd booked to see my GP on the Friday and so on the Thursday I messaged him through the patient portal and just said hey just checking you've got my results for tomorrow's appointment and he went yes bring a support person um, and, and I went that doesn't sound good no. um, and, he, and he went I'm sorry and so I went Okay. Okay. <laughs> it's it's not going to be good news, but that was helpful though because I was at home. I was actually just supposed to be about to drive to a comedy gig, so I messaged them and said, "Sorry, just been diagnosed with cancer. Not sure that I'm up to the headline spot tonight. Any chance <laughs> oh, no. you can find somebody else?" So, um, yeah. Oh my so God. I did. I did I was able to press pause on um, work and go, mm, the night that you're diagnosed with cancer, 
probably not the night to get on stage to be funny and entertain an audience so yeah so at that point I kind of messaged my husband and said I've got cancer and so he burst into tears on the phone and came home very rapidly Um, but it was good because we could sort of cry and hug and sort of get through some of that emotional side of it which meant that when I went to see the GP the next day it was all about kind of facts and details of like can you print out my pathology report so I can take it home with me what's the process of going to see a surgeon you know we were able to just get on to problem solving because that that was another learning being on the patient side instead of the doctor side Mm. is that if somebody's in an emotional state of shock having just been given bad news or or even really different news because I had another situation where I was given probably good news and and wasn't able to take anything on board because I had to like my brain was going oh that's all different and so it's all going to change yeah so just very briefly on that one I was told initially that I was her positive um which is a more dangerous cancer and requires 12 months of Herceptin um and so you know it's you know, a worse scenario. And then, and so the talk was all about, we'll be starting you with chemo, ASAP. Um, you know, you've got a, a her, her positive cancer, chemo first. And then when I went back to the surgeon, she went, oh, have you caught up with the news that you're actually her negative? Oh. And I went, no, I thought we were, I thought we were going to have the, and now you're starting chemo next week chat. Um, and she went, no, no, so we'll just pop you on the surgical waiting list. Oh. And then there was probably a spiel about surgical decisions that happened at that time. But because I was busy reeling going, okay, I'm not starting chemo next week. Ah, oh, maybe I can go on the family ski holiday then in a month. <laughs> oh, I should probably rebook those comedy gigs. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, so I... I, I, I had no clue what she talked about other than that we made a surgical date that was about six weeks ahead. And so I didn't have any questions about the relative benefits yep. of a lumpectomy versus a mastectomy. You know, what would be the potential side effects? With, are there any long-term consequences of making one choice over the other? You know, I didn't ask any of those questions. And then the week before my surgery, when I, I didn't have another appointment with the surger, surgeon until I saw her just before I went under, local, under general anaesthetic, I suddenly went... I haven't asked any of my (laughs) lumpectomy versus mastectomy questions at all. And so I messaged the breast nurse. I said, I've got quite a few questions about surgery there, X, Y, and Z. And she goes, it looks like you've got anxiety. Uh, Would you like to see a psychologist? Oh, my God. I I said, I've already linked with the Breast Cancer Foundation funded psychologist appointments. Thanks. This is actually just needing some basic information about my decision choice. I actually feel remarkably not anxious. I just have some questions. I'm very calmly going through the relative merits of my surgical decision and realized I don't have the answers to quite a few questions. And yes, I found that quite patronizing. Not that there's any issue and, you know, wonderful that she was able to kind of have on her radar anxiety and psychology because that's going to be an issue very frequently but the fact that I was just very calmly saying I have these seven questions that I'd like answered before surgery because I don't know the answers and that that was 
oh, there, there, it's just anxiety. And it's like, no, it's lack of information. I yeah. don't know. We, we haven't had this discussion because I was there to talk about chemotherapy and it suddenly did a U-turn with some new information that I had a different cancer and we were now doing surgery. So I wasn't mentally prepared with my questions. So yeah. that was a really that was a really good learning for both sides of the equation in terms of when I'm a doctor, if I spring news on somebody to not then think that they're going to take on board anything else really from that session um that it was you know if somebody's just got news it's very hard to kind of process anything else and that's why I think it was great to have the diagnosis the night before my appointment so I could get all the emotional uh, out of the way and then be in a relatively clear headspace to go okay so what are we going to do about this what's the process um what's the information and it was really helpful to me to get a printout of my pathology report so I could then sort of take it home look at it again and to be fair breast cancer is so incredibly complicated you know I think for a lot of GPs telling you the difference between her positive and her negative and the relative probability of the accuracy of those results because it was awaiting another test that's why it came back eventually negative that you know yeah. It's it's a difficult place for a GP to kind of go, well, this is what happens with your particular cancer because there's just so many different types of breast cancer and so many different grades and stages and things. So Yeah. So yeah, so then I again probably sort of tapped into the kind of useful to be a doctor and went on my New Zealand Women in Medicine Facebook group and went, hey guys, uh, anybody know of a lovely breast surgeon in Christchurch? (laughs) (laughs) And so then I sort of saw there were some trends emerging of who the doctors thought was great in terms of their personality and surgical outcomes and things. So that was really helpful and managed to message a, a breast surgeon through her Facebook surgical page mm-hmm. and said, hey, just, just been diagnosed. Any chance we could catch up and have a bit of a chat about what happens next? And so that was another thing where I felt very fortunate yeah. to be a doctor and have those connections that I wasn't just randomly waiting for whoever was allocated to me through the public system and having no idea. Whereas my surgeon kind of went, yep, actually, I've got a space on Tuesday. Let's catch up then. Wow, um, yeah. you know, so, you know, so that was really helpful that I knew that I was seeing someone that other doctors trusted and someone who had been really rapidly responsive and was able to see me. And so that was wonderful to be able to go and see her and kind of talk through their different options and the likelihood that I'd be having chemo first. Uh, So we just had a sort of brief starting point. But then the next step was probably the hardest bit of the whole kind of early breast cancer bit was she said because it spread to your lymph nodes so the the marble under my armpit was Mm -hmm. a big cancer infested lymph node that was almost the size of the breast cancer itself she said we need to check whether you've got stage four cancer like whether it's spread spread around your body so that was like whoa yeah and again another kind of privileged person option she said if you were going through the 
public system, you'd be given a CT scan and a bone scan to try and see if it had spread to your bones and things. But the gold standard treatment is a radioactive PET scan. Yeah. Um, but she said, I can't remember, maybe $5,000 wow. um, to pay privately for one. But I was in a fortunate position. I didn't have public health and uh, private health insurance, but I did have critical trauma insurance that I'd taken out with my life insurance policy when I was in my 30s. That uh, very fortunately, an insurance person said, this is a good idea. And so I, and it was really bizarre because I got the insurance update in the mail the week I was diagnosed with cancer and I looked down critical trauma and it it said all breast cancers and I kind of went okay and then I looked down and and it sort of said somehow I misread it it said something like about a $50,000 kind of lump sum if you had breast cancer so I went that'd be really helpful for kind of paying for things. And then when I put in the application, they gave me $321,000. And it was like, breast cancer's shit, but it feels like winning lotto. (laughs) Because it's a proportion of your life insurance payout. So it does mean that now if I drop drop dead, my life insurance payout is 321,000 less. But that just suddenly opened so many doors. It was like okay, I don't need to work for the next couple of years if I'm not well enough and we can still pay the mortgage and we will still survive. Wow, I had no idea that that was a thing that life insurance could cover. No, well, I don't think I did either. I think I'd, I mean, if, to be fair, if I'd looked at the premiums I was paying in my 50s, I probably would have cancelled it, but somehow I had, it was just an automatic payment and I hadn't quite, quite noticed the vast amount of money I was paying every month for the for this insurance policy but it it certainly like it was way less per month when when I was in my 30s when I took it out but it goes up sort of exponentially but that just opens so many doors so it's probably similar to if people have private health insurance and they suddenly go oh wow this is all covered but for me for me it meant I could choose to have any investigation that was the gold standard that the surgeons were recommending, it was like, okay, cool, I'll say yes to that because I've got this lump sum of money that I'm saying that money is for my health care. So, but it, it made me so realised that I was in this incredibly privileged position going into this. And I sort of looked around at people who, are, you know, couldn't test their tumour for sort of dangerousness level, uh, couldn't have a PET scan, couldn't suddenly change to having chemo in private in level four when the, uh, the public health system said, no, you can't have your husband in with you for chemo in level four. Uh, you know, it, it just gave me so many choices and that was amazing, mm-hmm. but it it was really shone the light on the fact that I was in this ridiculously privileged position and that that's not the experience of the vast majority of people who are having a very different experience. And so there was almost a survivor guilt about that of realizing, hey, you know, breast cancer sucks, but as far as it's sucking, it's sucking less for me than it is for a lot of other people. And that's really not okay. Um, These, these options should be available to everybody and unfortunately even with wonderful staff New Zealand is way behind the eighth ball when it comes to what's offered for cancer treatment and I 
pretty quickly put on my patient advocate hat going, everybody should know this, everybody should be getting access to this, why is this service not existing? You know, I kind of went through my treatment just in this sort of advocacy activist kind of role, which I've never really been in before. And so that was something that surprised me a bit that I was suddenly becoming this political activist and I was being in a normal, an annoying squeaking wheel with various cancer societies and but yeah I think that I think that was a coping mechanism for me to kind of get into advocacy roles and make noise and kind of be a nuisance to try and shine a light on some of these things. That's incredible that you're going through such a difficult time yourself and you're so motivated and inspired to help others and I just wow you're amazing. Yeah I mean thank you um it it didn't it sort of almost felt selfish because I knew it was a coping mechanism. So even though it may look like, oh, how amazing to be out there kind of helping others kind of through your cancer treatment, right from that first uh, message from the GP saying, you know, bring a support person, I'm sorry, I went into this, you know, after going, it's not fair, sob, sob, kind Mm. of, you know, my life's over. I immediately went into okay this is shit but what am I going to do with this um how can I find silver linings to this and I sort of went and had a bath and I dictated into my phone okay maybe I'll write a book about this maybe I'll uh do a one-woman show to educate people about cancer treatment maybe I can be like Moira Rose and have a wall full of wings and you know so I just sort of started brainstorming as an immediate go-to after the emotional collapse of what can I do with this there must be a silver lining to this I'm gonna yeah that that seemed to be a knee-jerk thing and I think it possibly stemmed from the year before with COVID of whoa everything's cancelled warehouse bound I'm a doctor but I'm not on the front line because I'm sitting here having video appointments with my patients and I had kind of some survivor guilt of not being on the front line so I immediately kind of went into projects of like videoing you know mental health kind of tips for anxiety with COVID and setting up doctor support groups for frontline doctors and so I think that had become my coping mechanism of when life turns to shit, try and find a project that feels meaningful. Yeah. You know, find, find your sense of purpose, no matter how bad the situation is. If you've got a sense of purpose, you're going to get through. So even though it's sort of an altruistic thing of helping others, it was also really helping me because it gave me a sense of purpose. And yeah. right from the first surgeon appointment which was you know a few days after I was diagnosed I went I'm going to start doing some vlogs so that way I can let my family and friends get updates but also maybe it will be helpful for other people going through cancer to kind of hear somebody else's lived experience and maybe it will educate other people about what it's actually like day to day going through cancer treatment. Yeah. So so the, the vlogs sort of came first in terms of posting those on social media and I was blown away by the response to them, the number of people saying, hey, it's so useful to kind of know what it's like to have cancer or hey, you know, I'm going through breast cancer treatment too. It was great to sort of see someone else's journey and get the relatable, oh yeah, 
I've had that too. So yeah. yeah, so it sort of went sort of step by step because when I had surgery, I had a really difficult experience with post-surgical pain where it was very poorly managed and I was left with uh, post-mastectomy pain syndrome with neuropathy in my arm with, you know, yeah. nine out of 10 level nerve pain down my arm yeah. and had to absolutely fight to get put on um, gabapentin to kind of manage the nerve pain because there was the mm. we don't like to do that we don't normally do it people don't usually have this much of pain you know so much <sighs> yeah so much kind of gaslighting about my pain experience and kind of go just be a bit more brave with your nine out of ten nerve pain because it will probably pass how about some Panadol and oh I gosh. kind of and I sort of went <laughs> Have you had a look at the research that up to 60% of women after breast surgery have post-mastectomy pain syndrome and it's really undiagnosed and poorly managed? Um, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the feedback was, oh, we don't really see that here in Christchurch. I went, nobody's asked me about my pain. Do you ask other women about their pain? And it's just like, probably not routinely. It's only if they bring it up. And I go, well, oh. you get you get five-minute appointments where you're sort of whirling through kind of range of movement and what's the scar doing. There's not a lot of time to go, by the way, I'm in agony. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that was kind of like my first sort of advocacy thing. And I had to find a private pain doctor in Auckland to have a consultation about my treatment and he said oh in Auckland we've got a post-surgical pain team that picks up the people whose post-surgical pain is not being managed by simple analgesia we pick them up we get their pain stabilized on medication and then hand them back to the GP and I went Christchurch needs one of those services because I was I was on two hourly morphine on the Friday yeah. was discharged Friday afternoon with enough codeine to last me till Sunday morning and so on Sunday morning I went I have no more codeine left I am in agony and I had to get family to search cupboards and my brother-in-law in Wellington found some codeine that expired in 2013 when he injured his ankle yeah. um, and my mother bought it down when she came down to support me after surgery with this kind of illicit expired codeine to get me through until oh my, my next appointment. So I mean it was just you know it, yeah. it was not okay the pain management side of things and the gaslighting and the lack of acknowledgement of you know how common and how severe this this pain can be and and also there's quite a lot of evidence that managing pain well post-surgery makes you much less likely to have a chronic pain syndrome as well so there's a really good case for early intervention and you know managing people's pain after their cancer surgery and not just leaving them in agony to fight for themselves and I guess that's what's so I don't know I actually don't know what the right word would be but like I'm a you know somebody that's going through this and they don't have the same Uh, knowledge of the medical system or able to read different types of academic articles and actually decipher what they mean I can just imagine that you know those patients like yeah they just have no idea what to ask or what to say or what to do I know and the fact that 
I, as a doctor who was presenting a summary of the medical literature on post-mastectomy pain syndrome, was still being gaslighted about it doesn't really exist. We don't see it in Christchurch. (laughs) You know, it's just like... Like what? uh, (laughs) Hello, you know. So it really gave me an empathy for the so many people with invisible disabilities who are going along to medical teams going, I'm experiencing this, and the doctor's going... Are you, you know, are you yeah. really, that doesn't really exist or that sounds like it's in your head or, you know, all, all of that stuff that happens with a lot of complex illnesses. So suddenly I was thrown in the depth of kind of being a patient, feeling vulnerable, being gaslit, you know, no matter, yeah. you know, I had to make so much noise to get gabapentin, but my GP was amazing as soon as I contacted him, he went, yeah. Absolutely, of course, the script is going to the pharmacy right now. Uh, um, but, you know, I was hitting my head against a brick wall with the kind of the, the, the follow-up care at the hospital, which was, you know, a really vulnerable time, being in a lot of pain and trying to advocate. And my mother even came with me, who was a very assertive person as well. And she was just like, wow, they really didn't listen to you, did mm. they? <laughs> um, Interesting. So, yeah, so that was a really powerful experience because I, you know, as a psychiatrist, I see quite a lot of people with chronic illness and they say to me, nobody listened to me. Nobody did anything. People don't believe me. And I, now I went, mm, okay, I get it now. I was wondering if as a psychiatrist in terms of the mental health aspect of going through a diagnosis like this, whether you learned anything throughout this process and it sounds like that perspective you you kind of did yeah absolutely and I actually my kind of journaling that started off being a sort of emotional dump of kind of thoughts then I suddenly started thinking I want to learn some more about the different kind of psychological phases and steps that people go through when they get a really serious or life-threatening mm. diagnosis. And one one of the most powerful learnings around that was um, one of the oncologists that I saw for a consult said, you know, when it comes to chemotherapy, have a bit of a read around decision regret because that's a really powerful, oh. important thing to know about with cancer treatment. So I went, hmm, never heard of decision regret. I'm going to go look at that. And there's this huge literature, particularly with breast cancer, around decision regret because there are so many decisions that you need to make as a patient going through the system, you know, Do I have a mastectomy or a lumpectomy? Do I have chemo or not chemo? Do I have the kind of really nasty nasty booster sessions with radiotherapy that leave you with way more side effects but slightly reduce the local recurrence? You know, there's all of these really important decisions, but you're making them when you're really unwell. When you're often really emotional, you're maybe quite brain fogged from kind of the last phase of uh, treatment, you know, and that decision regret kind of went okay and part of reducing decision regret is feeling really confident that you've got all the information you need to make a decision and 
I was reading, I was down in Wanaka on family holiday the week before my surgery, reading about decision regret. And it was that point that I fired the kind of seven questions through to the breast nurse. Um, So I got quite assertive around that saying. And miraculously, an appointment with the surgeon appeared the day before surgery, (laughs) where I was able to ask all these questions in person. So sometimes you have to be a really, really squeaky wheel to get your questions answered and to kind of see the person you want to see and that kind of thing so yeah so I kind of explored around grief as well in terms of the grief around your loss of health and I'd imagine you went through a grief process when you were diagnosed with MS from hey I'm a young vibrant drama student and oh shit I've got MS what the hell what the hell does my life look like now and so I went from apart from my sort of chronic fatigue kind of complex symptoms in 2020 I went from you know I'm a healthy middle-aged person with all sorts of exciting things happening with comedy and life and my kids are a bit older and kind of I'm getting to this exciting stage of life where I can do really fun things and um, then it's only oh wait no I've got cancer I might not even yeah be around for kind of some of these plans, you know, let alone in a physically well state to be able to do it. You know, and I mean, even though I've been very lucky to so far be no evidence of disease two years down the track, I still have things like, you know, I love water sports, but because I've had 30 lymph nodes taken out from my armpit and I've got already got a scar on my arm, I'm at really high risk of developing lymphedema so I can't right. I can't do too much paddling with that um or I've got to build up really slowly and be careful and so my husband and I walked the and kayak the Abel Tasman and so fortunately we were in a double kayak and I'd go paddle for 10 minutes rest for 10 minutes paddle for 10 <laughs> you know and but then we did um sailing with the kayaks and I had to kind of hold on to a kayak on either side in quite rough water while we're sailing and I'm going my lymphedema physio is going to be really mad with me right now. Here yeah. I am, like having my arm pulled in all directions, using muscles that aren't acclimatized. And my sozo lymphedema measurement did kind of shoot up a bit after that kayaking trip. And she was going, mm, yeah. did you overdo it? <laughs> but, you know, so I'm kind of, even though I've in a lot of ways recovered from cancer even though I'm living with the risk of recurrence there are things like you know my arm will never be normal it has it's chronically numb I'm on bucket loads of gabapentin to settle down the nerve pain it's at risk of lymphedema I can't get my arm sunburnt I can't get a mosquito bite on it I can't get a cut infected you know so I feel like 90% of my body is relatively able-bodied and then I have a disabled right arm that will that I have to modify my life to live with that and I I think a lot of people don't know that about cancer Uh, a a lot of people seem to think okay you've had your treatment you've you're no evidence of the disease at the moment so 
carry on living, there's nothing, you know, you're all well now, you might have a bit of a scar or something, but apart from that, but in actual fact, most people after breast cancer treatment have got significant physical symptoms yeah. that they're living with long term and side effects of medication and all sorts of things that kind of carry on with them. So even though they're well, they're not the same, yeah. they're not the same as they were before the, the diagnosis. And I think that's important. And, and just on the lymphedema topic, that was another thing where I kind of went into patient advocacy mode because I managed to connect with a breast surgeon who was going through breast cancer treatment herself up in Auckland and she said, one piece of advice, go see a lymphedema physio before your surgery so they can get all your baseline measurements. Ah. They can tell you how to try and prevent lymphedema in the early days post-surgery. They can then follow you up kind of six weeks after surgery, check your measurements, get you onto a rehabilitation plan, then follow you every three months for the first two years doing these sozo lymph measurements. Right. You know, so that's kind of the gold standard care but that is not the New Zealand care. The New Zealand care is mm. once you have lymphedema and the horse has bolted the stable, we will then refer you to a lymphedema physio and there may be a bit of a wait list by which stage your lymphedema will be permanently really bad and you will be living with a major disability for the rest of your life. But, yeah, wow. you know, so it was like, oh, this is not okay. It's not that expensive to go and see a lymphedema physio in terms of public funding and then I found out yeah. then I found out that the Breast Cancer Foundation actually fund a couple of sessions for everybody with breast cancer so everybody could go and see a lymphedema yeah. physio but lots of people don't even find out about this it's it's oh my God. it's it's pure luck to find out that you know you just happen to have come across the breast cancer foundation website and noticed that they they fund lymphedema physio but it was another thing where i had to be a really squeaky wheel i said yeah i would like to see the lymphedema physio before I have surgery to get baseline measurements and education around kind of how to prevent lymphedema. Mm. And it was like, sorry, we can only refer you after surgery. I said, well, can you do it like immediately after my surgery, please? And so I had to self-fund the first appointment myself, but I knew it was important enough to do that. But that's way out of reach for a lot of people who've yeah. just been diagnosed with breast cancer who have had to suddenly stop working because they're about to have <sighs> surgery to suddenly fork out, you know, a couple of hundred dollars to go and see a lymphedema physio. That's like absolutely not on the radar of priorities above no. above kind of food and paying your rent. You know, yeah, so, exactly. so it was like... Oh, why can you not flexibly use it that if you want to go and see them before your surgery to try and prevent the problem? That, and they said, oh, yeah. no, no, we just have a policy that we've got to refer after surgery. <laughs> but at least it's better than we only refer when you've got, you know, full-on lymphedema. That's kind of where you meet criteria for the um, the public service and then you've got to wait. So, yeah, so that, wow. you know, it's just such a simple thing to prevent yeah. to prevent it in most cases you know it it seemed crazy to me that there wasn't that prevention kind of strategy of you know going with the gold standard care of you know monitoring so yeah it's stories like that that really remind me why I've gone back to study and why it's so important that we just 
try and change this because it's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so that was another thing. Before we carry on with the interview, I wanted to quickly jump in and say thank you for listening to this episode of That's So Chronic. This podcast would not exist without your support. So if you haven't already, make sure you've pressed follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen, so you never miss an episode. All right, back to the interview. Then, then it sort of came to the chemotherapy phase, which then <laughs> was yeah. another massive decision and really complex thing. And this is another sort of treatment point where New Zealand is just miles behind the rest of the world. Because in most first world countries, if you have breast cancer, they send a specimen off if you've got hormone positive cancer to get genomic sequencing to work out the chance of that particular cancer spreading around your body and the relative benefit of chemotherapy so overseas you get told you know your your score is this this gives you this chance of um, your cancer coming back and this benefit from chemotherapy in New Zealand it's kind of like well, sort of back in the 1990s, we worked out that kind of, you know, if you've got grade three and you're younger, it's probably more likely to come back. So let's go chemo. And so firstly, the worst thing is that it's missing some people with stage one cancer who've actually got a really aggressive, nasty cancer that's just been caught really early, yeah. but it's already thrown seeds all around the body and it's, you know, you, you just haven't picked them up because it's not dividing fast enough to come up on a PET scan. And so it's missing those people who are going to die from cancer, but you don't know that. And so you don't offer you yeah. don't offer them chemo because you've caught it early and it all looks fine, but they've actually got a super dangerous, really high-risk cancer. And then there's the other group of people who it looks a bit marginal, but in actual fact, they've got a really safe cancer that's really unlikely to spread and you're going to do way more harm with chemo. So it kind of divides, it divides off those two groups of the chemo would be a really bad choice or chemo would be a really yeah. good choice that doesn't fit with the what's your grade, what's your age, you know, what's the size, yeah. all of those kind of things that we used to use, you know, in the 1990s, but kind of <laughs> since we've been in this century, um, there have been a lot of developments yeah. in terms of these genomic tests that are getting more and more useful. So I, again, paid another $5,000 to get some of my tumours wow. sent to the States. And then it comes back, okay, you've got a 16% chance of having stage four cancer within nine years. Your oncotype score is 18, which puts you in this category. You get a 3% benefit from chemo. You know, it gave me all of those bits of information that I could then weigh up the relative pros and cons of having chemotherapy myself and so I was able to kind of negotiate with the oncologist who was fortunately lovely listened really well and open-minded and very collaborative yeah. that I would have chemo but that I would have the option to stop chemo if the side effects were starting to get bad because I knew I only had this small this small three percent benefit from chemo so we we were able to kind of have have okay. a plan in advance of how we'd approach it 
but I, w I would have been in the dark without that Oncotype score. Yeah. And also just prognostically, it was really helpful to know that I had a 16% chance of having cancer spread around my body within nine years. So it meant that I had an 84% chance that I wouldn't. You know, so it, it, yeah. it just it yeah. gave me a much more accurate sense of my own prognosis and what to kind of, what I was dealing with rather than, and that was actually better odds than what my having a grade three stage two cancer gave me a much worse prognosis. But my my personal cancer was less aggressive than a lot of other grade three cancers. So it just it gave me helpful information, but only people who are very privileged can get these genomic tests in New Zealand, which, yeah. so that was another kind of, oh, that's, <laughs> that's not okay. Yeah. And, and then the sort of um, final kind of thing with chemo was I'd been right from the beginning on breast cancer support groups on Facebook, which were really helpful in those early days in terms of finding out information, kind of going, ah, this has happened, and having everybody going, praying for you, thinking of you, <laughs> you know, just having yeah. this kind of huge amount of international support around your particular meltdown of the day. But yeah. but it also meant, that's how I found out about Oncotype testing, in terms of the genomic testing mm -hmm. was on the support groups. And then all these women in like Australia and the UK and the States were going, oh yeah, and of course I'm cold capping with uh, my chemo to try and avoid baldness da, 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 da. and I was like huh never heard of this okay let me find out more yeah. and so I contacted Christchurch Public Hospital and said you know do you do cold capping and they went never heard of it what's that contacted the private hospital they went oh yeah we've heard of it we're sort of weighing up whether we get a cold capping machine maybe in a few years we might do that we don't have anything right now and so after quite a lot of investigating and finding out I found that I could get cold caps sent from Australia that have been around for a long time and have research evidence to show that for a lot of people, depending on your chemotherapy type, they're really useful in preventing, you know, chemotherapy baldness. And also I found out that there's huge number of court cases going on in the States because the chemo that I'd signed up for has quite a high rate of permanent baldness. And and the court cases are around that patients aren't being told that. So they're not making an informed yeah. decision. You know, for, for a lot of people, they'd be like, prepared to take that risk because I want this chemo and I want to increase my odds of living. But, you know, if you also know that cold capping has been shown to completely stop the risk of permanent baldness from the recent, yeah. you know, it's kind of like, why are you not, offering cold capping to everybody who's having this chemo to try and prevent them being permanently bald, which is likely to harm people's long-term mental health in a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, you know, so it was just kind of complete disbelief that this is standard care in the NHS in the UK. So mm -hmm. like a financially stretched public health system in the UK has managed to have cold capping as standard care in their chemo suites. Yeah. The next mind-blowing thing was that I found out that the New Zealand Breast Cancer Foundation have fundraised $500,000 for cold capping. So they recognised, hey, cold capping looks like an important thing to have as an option 
for chemo patients. So for that group of people who chemo hair loss is going to cause a lot of grief and distress, there is an option. So, you know, hats off to the Breast Cancer Foundation of doing that amazing fundraising. But that was in 2019. We're now in 2023. And only two out of the 10 machines has got into public chemo suites. Wow. And I went, went, what? So we've got the funding. (laughs) We've got kind of a a charitable um, organization that's ready to kind of get these machines in there. But there's kind of a block. And so I kind of went, okay, well, I I can contact oncologists through my medical links. And so I interviewed Mm. lots of oncologists around New Zealand trying to work out what the barriers were. And the two main barriers were, one is it's not ethical to offer cold capping only to breast cancer patients in a public chemo suite. If there's people with, you know, ovarian cancer who would benefit from it why can they not have it and only breast Mm. cancer patient can and secondly even the doctor that first brought cold capping to New Zealand and asked the Breast Cancer Foundation for funding to do research and Nelson said the paperwork is just a huge mountain hours and hours of work to be able to apply for these machines and several doctors said I just gave up on the paperwork it was in the too hard basket or we had to pay for for maintenance of the machines and the public man the hospital managers wouldn't pay kind of the small amount each year to maintain the machine you know so there were process issues and so I kind of said to the breast cancer foundation I've identified some process issues that may be a barrier here but at the moment, I'm not getting much response back in terms of trying to okay. pro- problem solve that. And then I said, okay, so this looks like it's a challenge. How about we look at the sort of um, funding that you do for psychologists, for lymphedema, physio, for post-surgical rehab, you know, with Breast Cancer Foundation subsidies to at least help women who want to hire manual cold caps yeah. to have that option. Yeah, and there's still kind of silence on that option as well so it and it's quite an ethical dilemma so I decided to increase awareness of cold capping and also some other chemotherapy um sort of strategies to try and reduce long-term side effects because like the chemo that I'm on has a really high rate of your fingernails turning black and dropping off um and people go oh that that's just cosmetic but you talk to people who it's happened it's incredibly painful we use our hands the whole time to have no thing you know and there's really really good evidence that icing your hands and feet stops that happening completely and overseas that standard care in New Zealand it doesn't happen patients have got to sort that out themselves you know so just things like that so I decided all of that information that I'd looked into and had looked at all the research articles and everything, I'm going to pop that all on a, a website so that people in New Zealand can just find it all in one place. Uh, they don't have to sort of be trying to kind of read research articles themselves. It's like a page on all of the research on cold capping, the research on icing hands and feet. So then people can just go and look at a sort of summarised version of the information. But the heartbreaking thing though is 
you know, every week I get somebody contacting me via my website or my Facebook page saying, I really, really want to cold cap. And now I've seen how much it is. It's like 399 Australian dollars a month plus the cost of dry ice. There's no way I can afford that. Is there any charity or funding or anything? And I've got, oh, I've got you know. And so, I mean, I'd love to have the personal bandwidth to set up a charity to be able to provide subsidies because, you know, in the States and things as charities that are there to kind of provide, you know, cost-free cold capping to chemo patients who want to do it um, in New Zealand, zero funding at the moment. Yeah, so if, wow. if anybody listening would like to set up yep. a charity <laughs> and has the bandwidth to improve the lives of cancer patients um, who want to prevent baldness through chemotherapy, uh, there's, there's a job for you. Yeah. I also made some videos as part of that, um, interviewed a couple of women who'd done cold capping about why they did it and what their experience was, and also interviewed a large, diverse range of women about hair loss, grief um, through chemo. And it just astounded me the really diverse range of women who suffered severe hair loss, grief. You know, there were older women who you'd kind of think oh they won't care about their hair because they're in their 60s there were really kind of strong outdoor rural women who kind of went I am no longer myself without my long hair that I've had all my life there was a woman from a Pacifica community who said my long hair is part of my whole sense of self it's just such an um, yeah long hair is such an important Thing for a Pacifica woman and you know heartbreaking stories of women refusing chemotherapy particularly Pacifica women because the threat of hair loss was so severe that they decided to not have chemo and one one beautiful story I heard that made all the hard work worthwhile was that I heard through family that there was a woman who had refused chemo and then through a friend of my sister's had been told about cold capping and my website, found out about it, decided to cold cap and agreed to have chemotherapy you know so it kind of made it worthwhile even if there's only a few of those cases where people have said yes to chemo because they found out about cold capping and that huge barrier of I cannot bear to lose my hair is gone you know and for this particular woman woman it was around her professional role her privacy she didn't she didn't want people within her professional role to know that she was going through cancer treatment she wanted to look like her usual self and losing her hair would completely kind of throw that out out the window you know so stories like that really kind of uh just those golden moments where you go wow that was worth doing it's helped people but I just wish there was some funding stream because there's a real ethical dilemma about increasing knowledge about something that people then can't afford you know and and I I think that was sort of one of the concerns the Breast Cancer Foundation had as well around you know there's already so many people saying no to chemo who would benefit from it we really don't want anybody else saying no to chemo but it's kind of like but that's already happening because oncologists are saying you will lose your hair and people are saying I cannot bear the thought of that I 
don't want to have chemo. You know, so it's it's already happening. And if mm. if there's something there that in a lot of cases can prevent baldness and can seemingly completely prevent permanent baldness with the chemos that cause that, it's like, oh, you know, why have we not got that option there there are so many ways to problem solve this situation but yeah I feel a little bit like I'm hitting my head against a brick wall in terms of public chemo suites but great news is that the private chemo suite where I did my chemotherapy has now got a two-person cold capping machine installed um, and and they said thanks so much for encouraging and supporting us to get it and kind of making (laughs) us feel like it was the right decision and kind of helping to make it happen so yeah so that was another really lovely outcome from making noise about it um, was that now for people in Christchurch who are privileged enough to have private health insurance yeah, they can they're able to access it. <laughs> but yeah, the the health inequality side of it just feels so wrong to me. Yeah. Having gone through as a privileged person yeah. who could access all these things that have meant that I now have an outcome at the other end in cancer survivorship because you know having cancer is not just about surviving it's about surviving well Um, it's about you know being okay and having minimum changes to your life and disability at the other end of cancer treatment and if there's things that we can do to support that that sometimes it's just as simple as ice your hands and feet guys through chemo or a little bit of funding towards cold capping or let's actually get those machines that are already funded into the hospitals let's problem solve that let's let's kind of get that on the table as a priority because people are dying because they're saying no to chemo because they don't want to lose their hair. And even if it's just targeting that extreme end of the spectrum, who will say no to chemo because hair loss grief is so terrifying. Yeah. Hair ended the TED talk. (laughs) I am conscious of the time and I was about to ask you if you had anything that you had to run away to because I do have a couple more questions that I would love to ask. Can uh, very happily keep talking because there's, yeah, still still a few things to kind of chat about. My next question is that, you know, you share a lot about your story and you have a, a, one of your comedy shows is called Cancer and Cartwheels. Your other show is, of course, the award-winning sellout show, The Cool Mum, that has appeared across New Zealand and Australia. What inspires you to create comedy material about having cancer? Because some people listening might be like, hmm, cancer, maybe not very funny. <laughs> yeah, and I was really worried that cancer and sort of body disaster humour would not be funny. And so it was with great trepidation that I first got up on stage and went, oh, I've recently been diagnosed with cancer <laughs> um, and started talking about it. And one of the first bits of comedy I did was trying to find a kind of humorous silver lining to the fact that my boobs are now different sizes after surgery. And so I talked about kind of my 
post-surgical boob, which got a boob lift in the process <laughs> of a lumpectomy, being like a millennial boob and my other boob being like a boomer boob. And, um, you know, kind of finding jokes like, you know, we'll be uh, watching the TV program Friends and the boomer boob will be laughing and the millennial boob will be going, some of these jokes are actually quite problematic. Um, you know, and, and talk, you know, do a kind of uh, act out of millennial boob and boomer boob, kind of having generation wars in my bra yeah. and, you know, talking about body parts, different ages of, you know, having a, no, a free no-wax Brazilian that took me back to my childhood yeah. and various other rude and inappropriate jokes. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I think kind of taking something real, having a degree of education around it, but then taking it off into some ridiculous kind of absurd, you know, that still has some kind of relatable content, you know, so bringing the generation wars in in my bra as kind of like what I'm living with after breast cancer surgery. So a lot of the show is in that kind of vibe. So it's taking something real and then kind of shooting off in one direction. Like one bit that's going down really well that I'm kind of working on at the moment is about the horrors of the risk of vaginal atrophy after you have been put into sudden menopause with chemotherapy and then you're on hormone blockers that put you into really severe menopause and you can't take any hormone replacement therapy so you just have to live with it and so I've got a bit about a vagina funeral that the vagina atrophy (laughs) gets so bad and then there's kind of 10 different guys who are at the funeral who do a short speech about their memories (laughs) and that (laughs) and so I've got all these different different characters of different guys kind of doing very rude and inappropriate jokes about their <laughs> memories of uh, so you know that that's the so it's definitely an R18 show yeah. cancer and cartwheels <laughs> but you know so so that's the sort of vibe of it so it's going from something difficult um you know kind of dark humor but then going into sort of silly absurd kind of humor so hopefully it take will take the audience on that kind of roller coaster of kind of like ooh okay, uh, that's really funny. So that that's my hope. And yeah, I've been pleasantly surprised that most of the cancer content has gone down well. And this is doing it in comedy clubs that yeah. aren't even people, pe- they're not even people who've signed up yeah. to kind of, for, for cancer. And hopefully calling the show Cancer and Cartwheels makes it fairly obvious there's going to be cancer content yeah so if you come to the show you're primed for yeah there's going to be cancer content but very excited just organized to do two like world premieres of cancer and cartwheels at little andromeda on the 8th and 9th of december oh fantastic and then with producer mulled wine we're going to do a South Island tiki tour to go around South Island um, towns in January to uh, further develop the show and kind of test it with different audiences. Uh, So that's really exciting to kind of have have that underway. Yeah, I just bumped into Eleanor a couple of days ago here in Edinburgh. Oh, (laughs) wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So really, really excited about working with her and uh, having that because I've self-produced the call. Um, so I've been kind of the person who's written the show, performed yeah, the show, marketed the show, directed the show, produced the show. You know, yeah. I'm kind of like the full team. Um, so it will be wonderful to be able to work with somebody else and kind of share that load. Yeah. Um, so. Oh, that's exciting. I'll make sure to 
put all of the information in the show notes so that if people are yeah, in New yeah. Zealand, they can come and watch. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So on com, I've got a upcoming events that's got all my solo shows Excellent. on it so that people can uh, find out where to go tickets so it's sort of a one-stop shop that's the right words yeah. in terms of uh, yeah one, one of the kind of things I'm living with is cognitive issues around word finding difficulty yeah. and quite often word replacement where I will randomly put another word yeah. that's in the same category but not the word that I was thinking of like I'll go I'm just going to go and get it out of the oven when I'm meaning the fridge yeah. or you know and I found I do it a little bit with my jokes where I kind of put the punchline in the premise at the wrong time yeah. and completely ruin the joke because I've kind of yeah and and that's a challenge when I rely on my brain so much for my careers to have a brain that's not as sharp as it used to be that's not as quick that kind of tires easily you know to be you know so I do try and do as much of my work as I can in the mornings after sleep and coffee yeah. to have the best chance of sounding coherent but yeah so because the other thing that I've got happening at the moment is in uh, September around New Zealand and Australia my book When Life Sucks yes. is coming out uh, so that will be coming out is uh, it'll be kind of everywhere by the middle of September around Australia and New Zealand and bookshops and it's an international ebook as well so no matter where you are you can get it and in terms of the audience for this podcast it's a, a book that's essentially around being in a caregiver role for someone who's struggling with their mental health and lots of really practical tips of what to do to support that person and when to reach out for help in terms of red flags yeah. that a person really needs to connect with a mental health professional. And the book's specifically written, it was commissioned by HarperCollins and they said, can you write a book for parents about youth mental health but as I wrote it I kind of went most of this yeah. content would be j just applic as applicable if you're supporting your best friend who's had a relapse of anorexia yeah. or your partner who's really depressed or you know your uncle with alcohol problems or you know that that um that kind of caregiver role yeah. is is kind of the the readership for the book basically and so to do some kind of PR shining the light <laughs> on the book I'm going around New Zealand and Australia September October um, so Sydney on the 9th of September and then Christchurch on the 23rd of September and then I'm doing 27th to the 30th of September in Auckland, 14th of October in Brisbane and 21st of October in Melbourne and so for most of those dates I'm doing a comb combination of an in-conversation book event so I'm talking to a local person um, like a radio personality oh, or author about uh, the book so going to be having a, a conversation about it and I'm also doing my solo comedy show 
about parenting teenagers um, <laughs> and family family relationships at the same time. And yeah, so thinking there'll be an overlapping audience in terms of parents of young people who will like to come to both. Yeah. But certainly the, the Cool Mums, a show that people of all ages have had kind of 11-year-olds up to 90-year-olds all kind of laughing during the show. So it is very relatable yeah. comedy and it is much more of a PG show. There's kind of no discussions about about boobs or vaginas in the cool mum. I think about the rudest thing I say is milf. Um, So, so yeah, so that that is a kind of bring the whole family kind of a show. And, yes, I'm doing a three-night season at the basement in Auckland that I'm really looking forward to. Um, That should should be a lot of fun. And, And that's hopefully a pretty accessible show because I'm doing it as a pay what you choose yeah. ticket prices yeah. so I'm hoping that will make the show easier for a wide range of people to come along to when hopefully the ticket prices are a bit more affordable yeah. with cost of living dramas oh, and things yeah. that people are going through it's uh certainly a uh, a big challenge I think to get out to live shows when you're barely putting food on the table yeah. so I'm hoping the pay, the pay what you choose uh, model is going to be helpful from that point of view yeah and what do you hope that people will get from reading your book well I'm seeing it as a first aid manual for mental yeah. health so just in the way that you do a first aid course and you know how to do rest ice compression elevation if somebody sprains their ankle um, that the book sort of set out in a way it's go mm, okay this person seems depressed yeah. um, what are the things I can do as a support person what's the knowledge I need what are the red flags what are the kind of day-to-day things I can do to help so I've tried to keep it really practical I've tried to write it in easy to read conversational kind of language there's little sprinkles of humor in the book when it's appropriate Um, obviously a a mental health book can't be written as a comedy in terms of this particular topic needs to be done reasonably seriously but uh, my brief from the commissioning editor was I don't want a boring academic textbook Um, so I kind of went okay "Okay, Let's write it. And I kind of figured, I mean, I write psychiatry reports and I write comedy shows. Yeah. And so the book is kind of half halfway between those two things. Oh, um, but yeah, I've written it so that hopefully the average parent or average person is able to read the book and it will make sense and they'll get some practical ideas of how they can support someone's mental health. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the goal is that it will be like the first aid manual that you might have on your shelf that you refer to when there's some disaster, you refer to this book when you go, mm, yeah. I think my friend has anorexia. Yeah. I need to know how to support them. Um, oh, and awesome. so I've seen my role very much as going gold panning for all the gold nuggets I can find. So I'm putting my experience in. I've collaborated with quite a few other mental health practitioners, different organizations yeah. like eating disorder, carer support, you know, tried to kind of pull yeah. in all, all of the tips from lots of different places to kind of have it as a one-stop shop in terms of uh, tips and ideas. Yeah. If we were to round off, I guess, where you're at now with your cancer journey, 
because I know that it is a journey and it's not something that just ends. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about the symptoms that you are still navigating now, but I guess how would we, yeah, sum up where you're at now in 2023, having been diagnosed in 2021? Yeah, so officially... I'm no evidence of disease, uh, but that can change at any moment with hormone positive breast cancer. I injured my back a few months ago and my oncologist said, we need to do an urgent spine MRI. So if every physical symptom I get that's new and doesn't go away quickly, I'm off to have a scan. So that's what I'm living with is this sort of cloud hanging over me sort of to to one point of kind of be vigilant for any new symptoms that don't go away but also each time I get a clear scan then there's a YOLO um, kind of situation of okay I've got the all clear what cool things can I do and fit into my life and prioritize until I have my next scan um, that I can just get on with life you know I mean I'd love to go to Edinburgh Fringe so I'm going okay we're doing that in 2024 rather than yes rather than one of these years I'll go to Edinburgh Fringe so so I've definitely got a little bit of a sense of urgency of kind of do the things you want to do now while you can um, just in case and but you know very much um, making the most of life Um, you know it's definitely uh, refocused my life to being in the present, making the most of now, doing the important things, don't put yeah. off things, you know, do do the fun thing while you can is definitely yeah. my, my motto at the moment. And also do the worthwhile things that will hopefully leave a positive footprint. Yeah. And I just think you are absolutely incredible with all of the work that you're doing and with your attitude and the advocacy work that you're doing and especially for sharing your story with me and with everybody listening. I feel so honored that you've chosen that so chronic. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, hopefully soon we will actually get to meet properly in person. (laughs) Yes, no, definitely. You'll need to try and come to one of my shows when you can. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to another episode of That's So Chronic. Or if you're new around here, thank you for listening to this episode. You can find links to everything Joe mentioned in the show notes so you can try and catch her live in New Zealand or Australia at the end of this year or purchase her book When Life Sucks. A big thank you for being here and supporting the podcast. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Instagram or TikTok at That's So Chronic. And if you would like to share your story with the listeners, fill out the Google form and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. But uh, yeah, if you remember the beginning of this episode, it might take me a little while. I hope you're having a great week and I'll see you next time.